Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Turn them over to Nehemiah tonight, Nehemiah chapter number 2. I want to look at four uh, short verses this evening. The things that we will see there tonight, the Lord willing, as we open the Word up and gain some understanding uh, for our lives today as well. A lot of relevant things. Uh, the Old Testament, the Word of God is unchanging, it's powerful, it's quick. As a sharper, sharper than a two-edged sword. We're going to read that verse tonight, actually. So, so we don't uh, discount or put aside the Old Testament. Many things in there that God has put and placed uh, for our learning, for our knowledge, our understanding, and to give us the full measure of His plan as we open up the Word. So we're going to be in Nehemiah tonight, chapter 2. And if you'll begin with me reading in verse number 17 of Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to finish out this 17 through 20, finishing out this chapter tonight. Let's actually back up to verse number 11 and begin reading there. So Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse number 11, beginning this evening, says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I rose in the night. I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. So this is Nehemiah speaking here. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down. The gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night in the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered the gate of the valley, and so returned. And the rulers knew not whether I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. So Nehemiah has come here. You know the background story, kind of, I'm sure. Nehemiah is sitting there in the king's chamber, uh, and uh, very sad to learn about the walls of Jerusalem still being broken down. They'd been broken down for 70 years from the time that Nebuchadnezzar had attacked. And he came and overthrew Jerusalem and carried people back to uh, Babylon with him. And no one had come back to repair the walls yet. And so as Nehemiah learns of this, he's very sad. And this is very dangerous. Now, Nehemiah, of course, as we know, he's in a very unique place. Being the cupbearer, he has to be a very trusted person because he's going to eat and drink something first before the king gets it to make sure it's not poison. So kind of a lucrative or a dangerous job, really. You know, I don't know if they had hazard pay or not for that. I mean, you don't want to be the guy that gets the poison that day, right? But that was his job. And so often in that situation, in that type of kingdom, and that type of uh, government, this person became a very trusted and close uh, individual to the king. 
there had to be a level of trust there because, you know, you could always pretend to eat something and give them the poison anyway, right? You could be in on something. And so this is a relationship that developed here where Nehemiah is able to actually have a, a close relationship, so to speak, with the king. And he is able to, uh, at times, no doubt, give counsel or talk together. And the king sees him sad one day and takes notice of it. And that could be a very dangerous thing for Nehemiah because, you know, you don't want to necessarily appear sad or, or uh, whatever in front of the king. And uh, so as we go along, we see that uh, the king learns of, of uh, Nehemiah's trouble, what's going on, and he sends him off on a mission with all the stuff that he needs in order to rebuild the walls. And that's kind of the first couple of uh, chapter and a half or so, kind of summarize a little bit. So now Nehemiah's here, and he's going around, looking at the walls, seeing all the broken down, seeing the gates are burned, seeing the walls broken down, and he is assessing the situation. He hasn't told anybody yet why he's there. He hasn't said anything about it. He's just going around at night so no one sees him, trying to figure out what you need to do. And that's what all, you know, anytime we're going to go uh, into a project or into something or into a new part of our life or something that God has called us to do as individuals or whatever, we need to take time and take stock of those things. And so Nehemiah is doing that. He's going around, taking stock of what he needs to do. So let's pick up in our text tonight in verse number 17. Then said unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, and also the king's words that he'd spoken unto me, and they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said to them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, no right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah has come here and he's ready to build and he's finally revealed why he's there to the people. And Nehemiah sends out this call to action. This call to work. And we today are also called to action. We are also called to work. Nehemiah has four things here for us today that we can take from. One is that we're called to action. We have a job. We have a purpose. We have a thing that we're to do to share the gospel, to reach other people, to live a godly life. We are called to action. We see in verse 18 that the people, after they hear the call to action, are stirred to action. They're ready to work together and to do what they have been called to do. They're ready to work together and, and, and do the work that Nehemiah came to. But then in verse 19, we see that there is some opposition to the action. And that often happens in our lives uh, as God is leading us along, as we go through things, as we're trying to live for Him in our daily lives, as we're trying to walk with Him, we find opposition. Because the devil doesn't want us as Christians to live a victorious life. And so there's some opposition. But then finally, the response to the action or the faith that Nehemiah demonstrates in verse 20 to continue the action. So let's look back at verse 17 again. Nehemiah calls to action. Then said I to them, Ye see the distress we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. So the call goes out. Nehemiah recognizes the problem. 
He recognizes, of course, that the walls are destroyed, the gates are burned, there's no protection for this city. And you have to remember that at this time, uh, a city was strengthened by the walls that it had. If you remember, uh, when the Israelites first came in, Jericho was a city with strong walls. In this time period, in order for a city to be secure and to be safe, it had to have strong walls around it because you have people roving through, nomadic people, uh, bands of different things. You have all these things going on, other kingdoms that want to come and conquer you, that want to take over your city. So you have to have strong walls in order to repel the attacks, in order to keep your city safe. Anybody could just come in and out of Jerusalem. Anybody could come in and take what they wanted, spoil the city, and leave. There was no protection for the people. There was no thing there to keep that from happening. But we have to remember another point, too, that Jerusalem was not just some other city. Jerusalem was not just any city that's out there. And still it's not. I don't think we realize sometimes, or maybe we do, but we just don't talk about it a lot. There's a lot of significance I think, towards end-time stuff that we uh, won't get into tonight, but end-time prophecies and the fact that they're, they're being, that Jerusalem is now being recognized. You know, if you remember, um, Tel Aviv was the capital for a while, and Tel Aviv is where they would recognize, in the na- but now they're recognizing Jerusalem. Our nation, and our nation especially, is recognizing Jerusalem, and they're gathering this stuff together. But it's not just a city. It's the city that God had chosen to put His name there. It's the city where the temple was built. Second Chronicles 6 and uh, verse number 6 says this, But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name by, might be there, and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So there's two things that God did. He chose not only Jerusalem to put his name there, the temple, but also chose David to be the house where the Messiah would come through, to be the kingdom that would be established forever. And even though uh, there is not a person per se ruling over Jerusalem right now that is in the king, the line of David, there will be again someday, as we see in the book of Revelation and the return of Jesus Christ. And so there is significance in this city. And Nehemiah recognizes that as well because he says, We're a reproach. We're a reproach to the nations because people can come in and out. There's no wall, there's no protection. They can do whatever they want to do. And God's name is here. Recognizing that not only was there a physical problem, but there's a spiritual problem there. That the name of God was being reproached by people who uh, were unsaved, who were heathen, who were not worshiping God. God's name was being brought down as well, not just the city. Look back at 2 Samuel, please, chapter number 7. 2 Samuel, chapter number 7, verse 12. See this as well here. This was established in the time of David, this covenant, this promise to David. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, and verse number 12. It says this, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of children of men. Look at verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. God speaking to David. Wanted to build the temple, and God said, no, but Solomon will build it. 
and the covenant was established right there. So Jerusalem is not just any other city. Now let me submit this to you today. We, as a people of God, bear God's name. When we go out and people know that you go to church and they know that you uh, are a Christian, we are bearing the name of Christ everywhere we go, when we go in and out. Acts 11.26, Barnabas looking for Paul. When they had found him, brought him into Antioch, it came to pass a whole year. They assembled themselves in the church and taught much people. And the last part of that verse is the key, Acts 11.26, the very end. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And I know you've heard many times before that at first this name was meant to be an insult. Christ follower, Christ-like, it's meant to be an insult, and instead it came the name that we want to be called today, hopefully, that we want to wear proudly, a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. I serve God. I'm living for God. I am a Christian, and we're not ashamed to bear that name. Today, the temple is not there. The city is built again. But here's the thing. The temple today is the individuals who are saved. The church today are the ones that bear the name of Christ. And as we go out, we don't want to bring a reproach to God's name. We don't want to bring down God's name. We're called to a work as well. We're not called to build up necessarily a physical temple or a physical city, but we're called to build up the kingdom of God. We're called to go out and reach those that seem to be unreachable or those that need to hear the gospel of Christ to build up the kingdom of God. We're called to go out and be salt and light, as we see in the book of Matthew. And we're called to do those things, and that that calling goes out. And if we're not doing that, we're bringing that reproach. If we're hiding it, or we're not doing those things, it brings that reproach. It's like having the city with no walls to defend it. I thought about these things here quickly, about salt. Salt is a preservative. You know, many years ago, Salt would have to be put into meat or other things to keep it from rotting, right, before refrigeration. It holds back the corruption. It holds back the rotting. It holds those things back. One of the things a Christian is supposed to be is salt, to hold back the corruption. How do we do that? We shine the light of the gospel. We let people know that God loves them. We mentioned today in Sunday school about just how there seems to be a lot of anger and different things going on in our nation today, and there is, and you don't have to turn on the news and watch for very long to see that. What do we do about it? We show people God's love. We're a preservative. We go out and we shine the light of the gospel and preserve it and, and, and influence so that people will come to know Christ as their Savior as well. But another thing that salt does, it creates thirst. You know, if you get something that's really salty, you want to get a drink too, right? Get popcorn at a movie theater or at your house or whatever, something like that that's really salty, potato chips. Makes you want to get a drink of something. So as salt, for us, preservative as Christians, we need to be creating thirst in those around us to know Christ as well and to know Christ more. Creating a thirst to know Him. That's one of the things too, by the way, if you look in the Old Testament, that you find out that that's what the Jewish people were supposed to be doing as well. That as they're living, they're supposed to be creating thirst so that people would come and learn about the God who created all things as well. Also, salt cleanses. Salt cleanses. I've been doing this lately. I didn't do this a whole lot growing up. We had cast iron pans. We used to wash them. 
growing up, you know. But um, someone told me that instead of washing it with water and soap and all that kind of stuff, just take your cast iron pan and put some salt in it and scrub it really, really good just with the salt, you know. And then you can put the grease or whatever back in it and just let it sit. And the next time you use it, it's ready to go. Okay. It's a cleanser. It works really well, by the way. If you do, I see some of you shaking your hands. You do it too. Okay. Uh, and it's great. It works really well. I was surprised because I didn't, we didn't do it that way growing up. And my grandmother only had cast iron, uh, all different sizes. Uh, but, but we have one and we use it and that's what we do to clean it. But you know what? It cleans things too. It cleanses. And as we go out and as we bring people to the one who can cleanse them, we are to do those things. We're called to bear the name of Christ and not bring a reproach. Nehemiah called the people of Israel to action to rebuild the walls. And today we're also called to action still to build up Christ's kingdom and to live for him. But there's a second thing here also that the people did back in our main text. Verse number 18 now. Nehemiah finally comes to the place where he's going to tell the people why he's there. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he'd spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Now the call went out. Nehemiah said, let's go out and let's rebuild these walls. Let's get it fixed. Let's get it repaired. But the people could have said, nah, you're crazy. They could have said, hey, it's been that way for 70 years. Why do we need to do it any different? The people could have said, you know what? I'm too busy. The people could have said, you know, I don't really want to go and work. That's a lot of hard work. The people had to choose to respond to the call that went out. Notice this. Nehemiah told them of God's words. Look again at verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which is good upon me, and the king's words that he'd spoken unto me. Then they said, let's rise up and build. See, here's the thing. The people had to choose to do it, but they chose to do it because they saw in Nehemiah the faith and the strength that God had placed. And they saw in Nehemiah a calling to lead them to do that. They saw in Nehemiah that God was on his side, and they wanted to be on the side of God as well. They wanted to go and join the work together in unity. Let me read you a couple of verses here. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30 and verse number 5. Proverbs 30. And verse number five, see, the thing that made the difference, I think, for the people was hearing and seeing that God was on their side, that knowing that God was working. And I realized that the king, ultimately, it's Artaxerxes, I realized that the king gave the decree for them to go back. But that's God's hand working in King Artaxerxes to give that decree back to them. God is the one who is at work behind the scenes in the whole thing. And when they saw that, they changed their mind. Look here at verse number 30 about God's word. Every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. 
God's words are like a shield. Every word of God is pure. It's strength. And that's what the people needed. They needed to know that there was strength in what was going on. They were, had been afraid to rebuild the walls for whatever reason for many years. They didn't want to do it. They needed to see that there was strength in God's word. They needed to be reminded that there's strength in God's word. Sometimes we have to be reminded too of the strength that's in God's word. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, please. Hebrews chapter 4 tonight as we continue uh, looking into this. We have to remember the strength... That is in God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12. For the Word of God, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's Word is strong. God's Word is true. God's Word is faithful And upon hearing of God's word, and upon realizing what God was calling Nehemiah to do, they then said, let's go and begin to build. They they came together in unity. They came together because God's word was with them, because they knew God was with them. We have the greatest resource right here in God's word that we will ever have, that we will ever need. And what we need to do is make sure that we're in the Word every day, building our life on the foundation and taking in from God's Word so that when those times come where we need that strength, we have it with us. It's the sword. I love that illustration. And we need to be uh, mindful that when we use a sword, I think about a sword and I think about all those movies with pirates and knights and swashbuckles, you know, and they're all, you know what I mean? And they have these amazing sword fights that they've choreographed and all this kind of stuff. If God's word is a sword, that's what I think of. I think of an, of an eloquent, uh, uh, well-thought-out, well-planned defense and attack and back and forth and how cool it all looks. I don't think about somebody up there just hacking away with this thing, right? I think all too often we just hack away, you know, we hear a Bible verse and we're like, and we're just hacking with this thing. But God's word is a sword to be used eloquently and, and skillfully and learning. And we can't learn skillful use of God's word if we're not in God's words. We need to be a people of God's word. That's where the strength is. And God's word encouraged the people in Nehemiah as well to begin doing the building, to answer the call in the right way. Look also in verse 18, because there's a little word in here that also helps us understand more about what's going on. Towards the end of verse 18, it says, Let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. They didn't say, hey, Nehemiah, go do it yourself. Or they didn't say, hey, you know what, those guys over there, they're pretty good at building. I see them, you know, get that guy over there. These guys over here, they're, they're pretty good at, uh, you know, making mortar. Get them over there. They said, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Because they rose up not only because they were strengthened by understanding that God was with them and that God's word had given them uh, strength to go out and to do the work, but they also rose up in unity together. They didn't start saying, hey, you know what, how about this guy or that guy? They said, let us. I'm going to do it. I'm going to volunteer. So in Ephesians 4, in verse number 1, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. 
with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep, here it is, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul goes on in verse 4, there's one body and one Spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Unity. And Paul begins talking about here in this thing. The people rose up in unity. And today we're called not only to be strengthened by God's word to go out and do the work that we're being called to do, we're also called to rise up in unity and together doing the work together as one, not as many different ones doing different things or not pointing to those that can do other things and not volunteering ourselves. We're called to promote the unity of the church. We're called to promote godly living together, working together, striving for those things. There isn't one thing. We've used this illustration here before. There's, there's one body, one body of Christ. Christ is the head. And all the different parts of the body have a different function, but they all work together. You know, again, you didn't want your right foot to go right and your left foot to go left at the same time, right? There wouldn't be any good to that. And if your hand decided it didn't want to be a hand anymore... And all those other illustrations that were given in Scripture and also just thinking about, we wouldn't want those things to happen. When your body isn't working right, it's because there's something wrong. You need to get it fixed. So we're working together as one body. And they were working together as one body. And we see that later on in the book of Nehemiah as they take up and they build the wall immediately closest to their part of their house, their part of their dwelling. And they work on it that way. And some of them have swords or spears or some other type of weapon. At the same time, they've got a trowel in the other hand. They've got a sword in this hand because they're ready to work together for building or defense of the city, whatever is needed. Nehemiah also was not a dictator. He was also working in unity. Go back to Nehemiah, please, and go to chapter 5 of Nehemiah because, you see, Nehemiah gave them a good example of everyone working together. Nehemiah didn't come to Jerusalem to give orders and tell everybody what to do. Nehemiah didn't come to be a dictator. He didn't come to get fame and fortune and glory for himself. Look at verse number 15 of chapter 5 of Nehemiah. But the former governors, that's the governors that the Persians had set up and others had set up before Nehemiah. The former governors had been before me, were chargeable unto the people, had taken of them bread and wine beside forty shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people, but so did not I because of the fear of God. See, Nehemiah came to do the work as well. Nehemiah didn't come to tell everybody what to do and be the boss. Nehemiah came to be the leader. And there's a difference between a servant leader like Christ, a leader the way that Nehemiah came to be a leader, and a boss, a person who just tells you what to do and sits back and waits for you. And no matter what part of the thing that we have in the body of Christ, we're not to be those that just stand over and tell everybody else what to do and sit back and wait for the work to happen. We all work together as a body of Christ for what's going on. Before Nehemiah came, the Persian governors has exploited. They'd taken from the people. They'd made them do all this stuff. They didn't join in any of the work. They didn't do anything. They even said that their servants were rulers over the people. Right in the middle of verse 15, even the servants of the governors got to tell the people what to do. There was no unity. There was no singleness of mind. But Nehemiah at the end says he, is, he fears the Lord. 
He has a fear of God, which gives him a healthy respect of who God is. And he, in turn, lives that out before the people, leading them in a servant leadership way, as we do here in the body of Christ as well. We all have different roles, but we can lead and be in unity in different things as we go through what God has called us to do. He wasn't a taskmaster. He wasn't taking from the people. He was a fellow laborer. And we are called also in unity to work together for the sake of the gospel. And to remember that God's word is what calls us to action. So we've seen the people called to action. And the response, we've seen they're stirred to action. But as often happens, there's immediate opposition to the action. Look back at our main text tonight, verse number 19. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Immediately that there's work being announced, and this may have been one of the reasons, by the way, that Nehemiah waited a little bit to kind of assess the situation and didn't immediately go to Jerusalem and say, Hey, I'm here, let's start building. But instead, he spent those three days and those nights going around the outside and looking at the walls and trying to figure out what they had to do, count the cost, so to speak. Because Nehemiah probably knew that in the back of his head there was going to be some opposition to this. The people are, of course, excited and happy because there's someone here to lead them in building the wall. The people outside are not going to have the same sentiment. They're not going to have the same excitement. They're not going to have the same joy because something that they have been mocking, something that they've made a reproach of, something that they have been uh, happy to see is now going to be reversed. Look back at verse number 10, by the way, in Nehemiah chapter 2. We didn't read this one, but understand that whenever these two men saw it and saw what was going on, they were already upset. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, that is, that Nehemiah was coming with the governors and the king's letters and all that stuff that we read in verse 9, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Here's two people in verse 10, three people in verse number 19, that have purposely set out and dedicated themselves to not see the welfare of the children of Israel. They've actually done the opposite. They've probably been three of the people that have been most behind people coming in and out of the city and taking whatever they want. They're happy that the walls are broken down. They're happy there's a reproach in Jerusalem because they can do whatever they want, whenever they want it, however they want to do it. They're happy to see that the people have no spirit in them. They've been broken down by the fact that their wall is destroyed. And they're upset because now their life is going to change. When I, let, me, let me just say that when, when, when there is work that God wants to go forward, there are going to be people who have immediate response to it that don't want to see it go forward for that reason. The devil does not want us to work for God. He doesn't want us in our individual lives to live for God, to serve God. He doesn't want us as a church to live for God, to serve God, to do the things that we need to do. He wants those things to be stopped and destroyed. And so in this way, we see opposition here uh, with these three men. But this opposition comes up in our lives as Christians as well. Satan opposes the work of God and those that try to accomplish his work. Now notice what they're doing. Look back at verse 19. There's two things that these guys are doing immediately to bring opposition 
to the work, and they get more and more intense as the chat as the book goes forward. But look, they said in the verse number nineteen, they laughed us to scorn and despised us, and said. What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Now, here's the thing. We know the background story because we've already we've read this chapter many times. You may have done Bible studies on it before, heard it in other sermons, whatever the case is. We, we know that Nehemiah is not a rebel. He's not doing something against the will of the king. He's doing something with the permission of the king and the money of the king and the resources of the king and the men of the king that came with him. I mean, he's got full support of the king. They're giving false accusations and they're accusing him out loud of doing something wrong. Not because they think he's doing something wrong. They probably realize that Nehemiah does have permission from the king because back in verse number 10, it looked like they saw the procession of Nehemiah coming back into the city. But here's the deal. Did they know that the people knew that? Maybe not. So as they call out these false accusations out loud, the people in the city, guess what they get to do? Mm, maybe the king is against this after all. Maybe Nehemiah's just, you know, it brings doubt. It brings doubt in their mind. And it makes them not want to work. And the false accusations keep coming. And the mocking, being laughed, being laughed at. No one likes to be laughed at. No one likes to be made fun of. These kind of things happen to Jesus as well. Matthew 9, 24. We see... Uh, that Jesus is going, this is, there's two things going on in this chapter of Matthew at one time. One is that Jesus has been called by Jairus uh, to come and to heal his daughter. And as he's going through the city is when the woman just reaches out and touches his robe to get healing from her issue of blood. So two things happening all at one time. But here, here's what's going on. Whenever Jesus gets to the house, finally he says this, he said unto them, give place... You know, in other words, you know, the people are all there and they're mourning and they're sad, of course. The little girl has died and they're upset uh, uh, and there's a lot of people gathered in the home. And Jesus says, give place, for the maid is not dead but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. They made fun of him. They laughed at him. He's dead. Can't you see that? She's dead. Excuse me. She's dead. Can't you see that? How could you give out false hope to the parents like that? How could you say things like she's only asleep? Brings up those doubts, false accusations. He was mocked in death, Matthew 27, 29. When they plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head. And a reed in his right hand, they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They weren't really attributing the real, the real worth to who he was. They were making fun of him. They're making fun of Jesus. He was falsely accused. Luke 23, 2. They begin to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, he's not doing any of those things. These are false accusations that came against Christ. We read in the book of Matthew, in a different verse, it says they went out looking for people who were willing to give false accusation against Christ. In other words, they went out and found people and paid him some money so they would go and lie about Jesus at court. John 15, 20, we're told the same thing would come to us. Remember the word I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So when we go out in God's strength and when we go out for the Lord to do work for him, we should not be surprised that opposition comes. We should not let that opposition get us down. 
because we're told that it's going to happen. And we understand that anytime that we're doing something for God, there's going to be opposition to it, whether it's something that God has told us in our lives to do as individuals or as a church, whatever it may be. As the people hear these accusations, they're beginning to get doubts in their own mind. Sometimes in our life, there's things that come up. There's past failures, past mistakes that call out to us and say, ah, you can't do this. You failed before. Why are you even trying? You can't do this. We can't do this. Our sin comes back to mock us sometimes. Sometimes we feel afraid. And all these things are like those men in Nehemiah that they call out and mock us and try to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. But we have to have the same response to those things that Nehemiah gives in verse number 20 of Nehemiah. So back in our text again, Nehemiah 2.20. There's opposition, and it's going to come. There's opposition to the action because the work that God has, Satan does not want it to go forward. But look at Nehemiah's answer in verse number 20. Then answered I them and said to them, The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore we, His servants, will arise and build but ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. That's right. They had a mind to work. You see, despite all the things that were going on, Nehemiah's faith in God was not shaken. That's why we sang the song tonight. Faith. Faith is the victory. He wasn't deterred from his calling in the face of the enemy. He wasn't changed in his mind just because things were happening. I'm sure Nehemiah expected a little bit of opposition. Nehemiah knew the ultimate victory came from God and in him alone. And so today it's the same thing. We have that solid foundation through Christ. The victory over those things that we uh, are afraid of, the things of our past, the things that come back to mock us or haunt us sometimes, the, found, the victory is through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore... My beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The work that we do for God is not in vain because God is giving the victory. God's giving the prosper. God's giving the increase in the work that we do for Him. And Nehemiah knew that. That's why he said those things. When we, at the very end of verse 20, you have no portion, no right, no memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah realizes that these people have nothing to do with this city because they're not Jewish. They're not Jewish. They have nothing to do with this city. Things that come up against us are that come up against us in our lives uh, are, are not of God. If they're coming up in opposition to us, they're not of God. They're not part of it. They have no place. Christ has given the victory through, Jesus, through His shed blood on the cross, His resurrection. We don't have to worry about those things anymore. We give those over to God. And our past sins, our failures, our shortcomings, the things that weigh us down are like those men, but the victory comes through Christ. Our faith and trust is something higher than all of these things. Nehemiah could have come in and trusted in the people that were there or trusted in the fact that they had weapons or trusted in the king's men and the king's money and all the stuff that came with him. But Nehemiah didn't trust in any of those things. He trusted in God. Trusted in God to do the work. And we don't have to be afraid of those things. Galatians 6, 9, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I used to use that verse in school a lot because I used to teach this class called AP European History and I was not nice. I was very mean. They were juniors and they needed to understand it was a college level class. 
Now, I didn't accept um, half-hearted work from them. They had a lot of papers to write. And I was not a nice teacher. <laughs> I, had, I went through a lot of red pens. We'll put it that way, okay? <laughs> but I used that verse. I put that up on the board because I wanted them to realize that all the work they were doing, there was going to come a time when they were going to reap the benefit of the hard work that they put into it. There was going to come a time in their life where they were going to understand why we went so intense in some of the things that we did in that class. We'll reap if we faint not. There's going to be a time when we're going to see that the work that we have done for Christ, all those things is worth it all because we see the victories that He's given us. We see the, the, the milestones, the markers in our life where we see victories along the way through our life that God has shown us something new about Himself and given us strength to go on to the next thing and the next thing. We look back not at the failures and the things of the past, but we look back on what God has done for our lives and the victories that He has given, and it encourages us to go forward for Him. Excuse me. In the middle of the season, we don't faint because we know it's going to come. It means literally do not lose heart. It's the same thing that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.1 when he said, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we faint not. It's the same thing. It means don't lose courage. It's not a literal fainting from heat exhaustion or whatever. It is a lack of or a loss of courage or a time when we are losing heart. We don't want to do it. And sometimes in the midst of our trials, that happens to us. We lose that heart. We lose that courage to go forward. But God gives us the victory. And we remember who our faith and who our trust really is in. And it's not in ourselves. And it's not in the things that we have or the things that we can control or hold in our hands. But it's in Christ alone. God gives the victory through His mercy. And God's mercies are new each morning. And through His mercy, we have strength to overcome those obstacles, and we can be faithful to the ministry that God has called us to as well. We can be faithful to the action as the people here were, as Nehemiah was, realizing that God is the one that our faith, our hope, and trust is put in tonight. And so these things tonight have the same application for us today. That there's a call to action. There's a job that God wants us to do. There's a thing that we're supposed to be doing for the Lord. We have to be stirred to the action. We have to accept that call, answer that call, and go out and do the work that God has called us to do. Realizing, though, that there will be opposition in that work, but the opposition is overcome because of Jesus Christ who gives the victory and our faith and hope and trust is in Him.